Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. It's been a couple of weeks since I was here, so um, I'm just going to re-preach the first half of chapter 10, if that's okay with you guys. No, but I do want to hit a couple of high points, um, just remind you, because they're important as we go along. Um, remember in chapter 10, this was where Jesus had, had um, gone up onto the mountain the night before and prayed to the Father, presumably asking the Father, whom should I send out? Of all the disciples that I have um, following me, whom should I send? And so he came down with 12 names, and he came down, and out of all the disciples he had, he picked out 12 specific guys. And we spent a little time looking at them, but really the, 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 the main idea is that it was 12 just ordinary guys. Nothing special about these particular guys. I mean, they were like, um, like blue-collar workers and tax collectors and, and just, you know, a zealot who was basically an assassin um, and just a bunch of other people. Nothing especially special about them, just ordinary guys. Uh, and then I brought us to 1 Corinthians where Paul explains that God used the simple things of life to confound or to shame, it says, but it means to confuse the wise. Um, and really, what does that mean? It's like God was saying, look, I'm going to take the simple things. I'm going to take these ordinary guys, but I'm going to do something extraordinary with them. Um, and the purpose of it was so that no one would actually look at the ordinary guys and think, wow, they're really awesome. In fact, they're not awesome. And I'm going to do something amazing. So when you see that amazing thing happen, you won't say, wow, they're amazing. You'll say, wow, God is amazing. Glory. That says so that God used the simple things of this world to do extraordinary things so that God would get the glory, not man. In fact, you would look at somebody like them or somebody like me, and you would say, I don't actually, I mean, God must be amazing if he could do that with that. And that's what he did with these 12 ordinary guys. In fact, it would be said of them later that they turned the world upside down. And it wasn't because they were awesome. It was because God was using them and working through them. In fact, at that point, he poured his Holy Spirit into them to give them Holy Spirit power to be able to do these amazing things that they were able to do. And it wasn't because they were great. It's because he is great. So <clears throat> then he tells them to go and take nothing with them. Basically says, take the clothes that you're wearing on your back. Don't take an extra bag or an extra belt or extra shoes or all that, that stuff. Do you know, as I'm saying this, I'm reminded, like I traveled while I was away. I went up to um, where my parents, my hometown, and we each got to take um, a, a checked bag. I paid for checked bags. That's like... It's like a like hundred thousand dollars to take a bag when you fly nowadays, and um, it, it, it's restricted to forty pounds. And you think forty pounds—that's plenty. Until I take my daughter's suitcase, I'm like, oh my lord! And I put it on the bathroom scale, and it comes up at like forty-three pounds. 
And I think, uh, man, we're going to be in trouble because we're going to get there. And they'll be like, sorry, this is, this is over the weight. But I, this is what I don't get. Sorry, I digress a little here. This is what I don't get. If her bag is 43 and my bag is 20, can't you just stick the two of them together on the plane in the same place and we're all good? Or else can I get a discount for the 19 pounds that I'm not using? Has anyone ever asked, I wonder? But the beautiful part of it is like, well, we were taking a lot of stuff. We were going to be relying on a lot of things. Like, I suppose I could have gone with just the clothes I was wearing and just the shoes I was wearing and get to my parents' house and be like, I'm just going to have to do laundry every day, I guess. You know, once you get there, and then they change it to 50 pounds, and we're like, oh, I could have brought more. That's what I thought. I could have brought more. <laughs> he says, don't take anything extra to them. When you go to go out and to share this message of the kingdom, don't take extra stuff. He says this because he says, if you take extra things, you will rely more on the stuff that you brought than my provision for you. He says, you don't need a lot when you've got me. That's what the message that he gives to them. Now, I think about that in terms of us as well. Like sometimes we think, oh, well, I, you know, I, 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 I can't go out and share my faith with anybody. I don't, I don't have enough. I'm not equipped enough. And I, and I think the Lord would say, well, if you rely on me, you've got more than you need. In fact, the message will be so easy to understand and so simple. Well, I know this pastor that um, used to be this really effective preacher, could share the gospel could teach the Bible in really plain, easy-to-understand language. For many years he did this. Um, and then he decided to go and get his um, doctorate degree in religious studies. Now, I'm not anti-intellectual. I think education is great. Um, I'm not against it at all. But in this guy's case, what happened was once he finished his degree, he said, look, I put all this time and effort into getting this degree. I'm going to use it. Now... You can't understand a single thing he says. He speaks so high above everybody's head because he's using this advanced degree rather than what the Lord had given him to convey the message before that nobody can understand. And people are leaving the church and they're going other places because they can't understand him. <clears throat> just Jesus says, when you go, go with as little as you need and rely on me to do all the rest. I think that can be scary. Do you remember, do you remember when I, a couple weeks ago, I said, how many of you right now would go on a trip and just say, let's just leave. We're not going to pack anything. We're not going to plan anything. We're not going to take anything. We're just going to go. Let's just go. How many of you would do it? Do you know who said yes? One nine-year-old boy <laughs> right over here. And I thought, perfect. That's perfect because that's the kind of faith we're supposed to have childlike faith that says, we're supposed to go. All right, let's go. I don't need anything. I've got God. He owns everything. Everything. That wasn't planned, and it was so a God thing that he said that. I just love that. So then he says, you're going to be out there as sheep in the midst of wolves, which sounds very scary. Wolves are scary, I guess. Unless you're a wolf lover, 
then they're not, I suppose. But in general, wolves are scary. But really the message here that he's saying is you're going to go out and you're going to be among wolves. Wolves do it this way. You're going to be different. Wolves are vastly different than sheep. All right. Can we agree on that? Can I get an amen on wolves being different? All right. If I had wolf here and sheep here, would you be able to tell the difference? Yes, you would. You would say, obviously sheep, obviously wolf, because they are obviously different. He's saying, when you go out with this message that I'm giving to you, you're going to be out there doing it differently than the wolves do it. When we take the message of Jesus out of the community as a believer, as a Christian, we're supposed to do it differently than the world conveys their beliefs and their understandings and their agendas. We do it different. They are loud and, and, and vicious. We're not. We're not supposed to be. In Ephesians 4, it says we're supposed to put off bitterness, put off wrath, put off anger. But you can't just put it off, by the way. You got to put some stuff on in place of it. Love, compassion, tenderheartedness. That's the difference between a sheep and a wolf. Do this, be this, be a wolf. <laughs> Be a sheep. <laughs> Dang, <laughs> that was going so well. You know, Jesus is telling this to these 12 guys, Peter being one of them, right? Peter hears the message, all right, I'm supposed to go out, I'm supposed to be a, a sheep. I'm supposed to do it differently than the wolves do it. And then... When Jesus, at the end of his ministry, near the end of his life, is in the garden praying, and it says that the crowd came out after Jesus to arrest him. Do you know what they brought with them? Clubs and swords, right? They came out as after a robber, Jesus says, right? So they come out with their swords. What does Peter do? He pulls out a sword. He's a wolf right in that moment. And what does he do? He cuts off somebody's ear in the process. In defending Jesus, he cuts off the high priest Malchus's ear. It drops on the ground. And the Lord says, whoa, whoa, Peter. Not like they do it, like I do it. Put the sword away, he says. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And then he picks up the ear, brushes it off. I think there's a five-second rule. It applies to ears. Puts it back on Malchus, the one that's coming out, one of the ones that's coming out to arrest him. He heals him. He, he, says to, he says to Peter, not the way they do it, the way I do it. And then he demonstrates what he does is he picks up the ear. He could have been like, kicked it out of the way. And like, good luck. He demonstrates it right there for them. No, not their way, this way. Then he goes on and he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I struggle with the serpent part. So I don't like snakes. I can't imagine anything good about a snake at all. Although I am a little kind of in awe in how they're able to do what they do without any arms or legs. They literally, I mean, they crawl and, and you know, you guys have seen snakes. You know how snakes work, right? This. <laughs> I don't have to explain snakes, although I do think it's funny that, you know, snakes don't have any arms or legs, right? Right? Yeah, okay, good. I'm just checking. Um, that's a curse that was put on them in Genesis, you know, when, when, when the serpent um, 
deceived Eve and Adam into eating the fruit, the, um, God came down and he cursed him and said, you will from this point forward crawl through the dust on your belly. So I am thinking, did they have arms and, arms and legs before that moment? And what did that look like? I mean, can you imagine a snake, but he's just got these like little arms and it's just like, it's coming over to Eve. He's like, try this fruit. I just imagine it. Now you all will for... Or you'll just imagine me doing that ridiculous thing. <laughs> Either way, we're good. But he says you ought to be wise as a serpent when you go out there. And so if you recall, what we talked about is because a serpent doesn't have any arms or legs, how does a serpent protect itself? Well, the most vulnerable part of a serpent is its head right? And so when you see a serpent and when it feels threatened, it wraps its body around its head. You've seen this before? And so if you see a snake coiled up with its head is in the middle like this, it's protecting his head. He says, when you go out among the wolves and you have a message to share that's different than the way that they would share it, even and in content as well, protect your mind over what's out there. There's stuff, people are going to want to hurt your feelings, they're going to want to hurt you physically. You're going to be afraid. You're going to be worried. You might be swayed to start to think something different. Protect your head. Protect your mind when you go out. And then he says, be as harmless as a dove, which I think we all are like, okay, yes, doves are harmless. You don't see like doves like diving down and grabbing up small animals and things. Doves seem harmless. But the word harmless in Greek means something slightly different. It actually means unmixed or pure or undivided. So he says, go out and be wise as a serpent. Go and protect your mind. But, and also, while you're there, it's very important that you are unmixed or pure in your dedication or devotion to the Lord in the message, whose message you're taking out. That's this idea of not having a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom of heaven and feeling like that's all going to work out somehow. Like, oh, I could somehow balance both of these worlds. And he says, you need to be undivided, unmixed, and protect your mind when you go out giving a message that's different than what the wolves have and in a way that's different than the wolves do it. That brings us to verse 17 in chapter 10. So he says in verse 17, but beware of men. This part, what he's going to do as he goes through is he's going to say, these are some things that are going to happen or that, that will happen, and here is how you should handle these things when they do happen. Beware of men. It's like this. When you see a sign on the wall of somebody's property or their fence and it says, beware of dog, what do you know is there? A dog. It doesn't mean that there might be a dog, a vicious dog in there ready to jump on you. It means that there is a dog and beware. And this is what he's saying. These things that are coming, they will happen. They not, it's not that they might happen, they will happen. So if you know that they will happen, be ready. That's what beware means. Be ready, be prepared. So this is what he's going to tell them. Beware of men, for they will deliver you to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And so he says that because of the message that you are going to go, and because of the way that you're going to do it, and because of the name in whom you come, you are going to be 
dragged before councils, governors, and kings. And it's very interesting because that covers pretty much everybody. Gov- councils and the council was the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish governing board. It says that you're going to be brought before them because of the message that you have. And also, he says, between, before governors and kings. And that speaks of like civic authorities. So religious authorities and civic authorities are both going to be unhappy with the fact that you are coming with a message that they don't like or agree with that is upsetting to them. They're going to drag you before them. You know, we actually well, still see some of this going on today. Not so much the synagogues, but we did see, especially a couple of years ago, a lot of civic governments coming to churches and saying, we are going to decide for you whether you can be open or not open, whether your message can be shared or cannot be shared. If you remember, a lot of churches were forced to close down or told they had to close down during COVID, and many did, and some didn't. So we see that the civic government stepping in saying, we are going to tell you what it is that you can say and can't say or can do or can't do. But what I did see, which makes me even more sad, is I did see churches speaking poorly against other churches, whether because they did open their doors or whether because they didn't open their doors. This is kind of what we're looking at, is religious authorities speaking out against other people who are bringing a message of Jesus because of some part that they don't agree with. And Jesus said that will happen, and it still is happening. He's warning them, and he's warning us. These are the things that are going to happen. But verse 19, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now Jesus says to them, when you are brought before the council or when you are brought before a governor or king, don't worry about what you're going to say or not say. This isn't so much him saying, don't prepare or don't be prepared, because we are told that we're supposed to be prepared to give an answer um, to those who want to know about the hope that we have. We are supposed to be prepared. This is more about him saying, don't worry about what you're going to say or not say. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you got into a conversation with somebody about your faith, and all of a sudden, you are able to say things that you didn't know you knew. All of a sudden, you're just like a Bible verse comes to mind or a passage or some truth that you had forgotten of or something, some answer you have that fits perfectly into that spot where you're having that conversation. All of a sudden, you realize, I didn't even know I knew this stuff. Well, maybe you didn't, but maybe it's the Holy Spirit speaking through you right in that moment. Now, this doesn't mean that if you, um, let's say, preach a sermon on Sunday mornings, every week that you aren't supposed to prepare. You're just supposed to get up and say, oh, you know what, I'm just going to play pickleball all week and just get up there on Sunday and see what happens. I don't think that's being a very good steward of the time that the Lord has given a person to do that. Um, so I don't think it's to not, be pre- not to not prepare. I think the admonition is don't worry that you don't know what to say. I also think that means like, if you have the opportunity to share with somebody, but you don't because you're afraid you don't know enough. I don't know, what will I say? If, what, well, what if they say this? Then I don't know, what, what if they say that? What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? You know what you can do? 
you could say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to go and look it up, and I'll come back to you. And you know what you've just done? Number one, you've shown you're not perfect. And number two, you've just set yourself up for another opportunity to talk to that person about your faith. Amen? That can't be bad. We don't know everything. Maybe the Lord in that moment has said, I could have answered that for you, but it's that second opportunity that's really going to be good. That's where we're really going to you know, see it come to fruition. So, verse 21, it says, Now, brother will deliver a brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. I love these cheery little verses that the Lord... Because the really feel-good ones. What Jesus is saying is the message that you're going to bring is a message that is going to divide people. Um, it's, the, it's the idea of when you have two kingdoms with opposing beliefs, when those two kingdoms come into contact with one another, Battles happen. It's inevitable. Battles will happen. And so Jesus is saying, look, this is going to happen when you have a person that believes something and a person that believes not just something different, but oftentimes the opposite. When those two come together, there's going to be battles that happen. There's going to be um, if arguments and disagreements and things that will happen. And, and he's going to have an extreme where he says that father will deliver up child kind of a thing. But he's saying that there will be some battles that happen among these two kingdoms, especially if those two kingdoms are in the same household. Um, probably some of you have experienced this um, or are experiencing this. All of a sudden, you come to a, a, an understanding of Jesus Christ and you grow and you, you become a, a Christian, um, but nobody else in your family believes that. And now you're, now you're realizing that, um, wow, we don't agree, and sometimes arguments happen as a result of your family, your parents, your brother, your sister, whoever it is, don't agree. In fact, do you guys know, um, the, the, do you know the book or the movie Case for Christ? There was a guy, uh, Lee Strobel, was a journalist, and, and uh, his wife got saved. And he wasn't a believer. He didn't believe in any of it. And he was really mad. He was mad at her. He was mad at the church, all of this. And so they, they kind of didn't, they weren't getting along because of their faith. And so he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to do a journalistic report, and I'm going to show her, I'm going to prove to her that she's wrong. And in the process, he got to a point where he saw all the evidence and he couldn't deny that it was true, and he got saved also. Isn't that amazing? So, I mean, if you're in a situation right now where you have um, a family that doesn't believe or agree with your faith, you know what this says here? Let me see if it says it here. I, mean, I might have jumped ahead. He, uh, well, let's, we'll come back. It says in 22, it says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. The word saved there... Um, it means, it can mean persevere. So it's like he who endures to the end will persevere. In, his, in Lee Strobel's wife's situation, she endured and he, and persevered because he came to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ. And probably some of you here, if I was to ask you to raise your hand, would say, yes, 
I had family members who were opposed to my faith, but over the course of a long time, perhaps, they came to also believe because of my perseverance in my faith. And you would say, you know, and now, they, now they're believers as well. But maybe you're in a situation where they're not. I would encourage you to say, endure unto the end, and the word says that you will persevere. So there is hope for your unbelieving family. It's possible, it's very possible, and probably likely, that if you are a lamb representing Christ, your family will see that in you, and the Holy Spirit will break into their life. It's just, I'm just trying to encourage you. So then he says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another For as surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He says, when they persecute you, flee. You know, he doesn't say, he doesn't invite them to become a martyr. He doesn't say, make sure you stay there in their faces until they kill you with stones. He says, when you face this persecution, um, flee. But what does he say? Just don't run away and stop flee to another city. Essentially what he's saying is leave that situation and go somewhere else and continue to do the work that you've been sent out to do. Because then it says, um, I say to you that no one will have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Oh, there's a lot of discussion around that part of the verse that is like, well, did Jesus mean like, like he was going to he was going to come and join them, or does it mean like he was going to come back and then he didn't somehow, or he was mistaken about that? First of all, I don't believe that Jesus ever made any mistakes ever, especially in what he said. What I think he is saying, which is a bigger picture overall, is he says there will never come a day when we can step back and say, we've told everybody, I guess we can just stop and wait for the Lord to come back now. There will never be a time when we can say we've finished the work, Um, every single person has been told, we've told everybody, now we can just wait. We're done. He says, I will come back before you reach the end of the work that you're called to do in sharing the gospel. I'll come back. In fact, I hope he comes back while I'm in the middle of it. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if he came back like Sunday at like 1158, 11.59? Like right when we're in the middle of it. Wouldn't that be cool? Like when we're in the middle of church, like we've got our Bibles open, I'm preaching a sermon, you guys are sitting there and you're taking notes and you're looking and all of a sudden it's like, burn, burn, burn. And when we all go up, we're like, yes, look at us, God, we were in church. I hope that's the case. I hope I'm not doing something I shouldn't be doing that I'm trying to hide from everybody, especially God. And he calls you home and you're just like, no. He says in 24, disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. So really what he's saying is we are becoming like Christ. You know, it's a good thing that we are becoming like him. It's really all he's saying is it is enough, it is fitting, it is good that we are becoming like the master, like our teacher. But then he says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? You know, Beelzebub was just another name that had become known as Satan. So they remember they said to Jesus he was casting out demons, and they were there 
and they saw the miracles happening. Uh, this is the Pharisees, and they could not deny what they were seeing, so they said, well, he casts out demons by the power of Satan. Essentially, they said, he's doing this of the house of Beelzebub. He's, you know, that's Satan casting out Satan. And Jesus, at one point, I think Jesus is just like, that's stupid. And he just, he doesn't say anything. He walks away. He doesn't address it until later. He's like, why would the power of Satan cast out the power of Satan? That doesn't even make any sense. But they were calling Jesus Satan. And so he says, if they called me Satan, they're certainly going to call you Satan if you are becoming like me and if you are sharing the same message that I shared. Don't be surprised when that happens. And he says in verse 26, therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. You know what Jesus says to them is like everything that is true will one day be known to be true, and everything that's a lie will eventually be known to be a lie. You cannot keep a lie covered up. In fact, the only way to cover up a lie is with what? More lies. You can only cover up lies with more lies. So if you think about lies as like really poor building materials, you could build a house with really poor building materials, but eventually it will collapse under its own weight and fall and everything will be revealed. And this is what he's saying is there is nothing, there is no truth that will remain hidden and there is no lie that will remain hidden. Everything in its time will be revealed. We don't know the times of, the, of when things are going to be revealed, but he does. So he says, take heart in knowing that if it's true, if whatever is true will be known to be true or shown to be true at some point. And whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the rooftops. He says, don't be shy to share what it is that I've told you, each and every one of you, don't be shy. Really, that goes back to testimony. Remember, he says, when you are pulled up before the councils, when you're pulled up for the, for the, before the governors and the kings, there's purpose in that hard tribulation. There's purpose. And the purpose is, he said, it will be a testimony for them. Um, the word testimony, it means, um, in Greek, it means a proof. In the New Living Translation, it says, this will be an opportunity for you. Uh, a, t a hard time, a tribulation, a tough situation in your life, God says, is an opportunity for you to be a representative of Jesus Christ. Oh, man, that's hard sometimes, isn't it? That's hard. Man, when you're going through it and it's a hard time and you think, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? He says, this is a great opportunity for you to be an incredible witness for me because people will look at your life and be like, you know, if I were you, I'd be freaking out right now. But you seem so calm. Why? And that's when you're like, oh, this is the time. Let me tell you why I have a hope inside of me. I'm ready, as we're called to be, ready to give an answer when someone says, how come you're not freaking out? And you're like, well, I am a little bit. But I trust God. God said, this hard time that I'm in, this struggle that I'm going through, these obstacles that are before me 
are for a testimony. They're an opportunity for me to represent Jesus to you, it says, to the Gentiles. To you. Man. So don't be afraid. Verse 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Another happy little verse for us to enjoy. I know you're thinking like, all right, I, I, I know this is supposed to bring me comfort in some way, but it really just seems like both verses have to do with me dying in some way. That's kind of true. I mean, they do talk about that. But this verse isn't about death. It's about fear. This verse is about fear. And who do you fear? Do you fear the one who can simply kill your body? I love, isn't that so nice of God when he says, why are you worried about the person who can just kill your body? Because death to God is completely different to us. Our body dying here, my heart stops pumping here, means that my life goes on in actually a much better way and place. There's no struggle in heaven. There's no sickness. There's all the really bad food that you want to eat and no heart disease. I'm not sure where I get that. I'm I'm just hopeful. I'm hopeful on that. There's no, in heaven, when you pass from this earth to that heaven, there's no daily temptation to fight off sin that's gone. That's why God says, death here isn't death. It's just passing from this place to the best place. Death to God is being separated from him forever. He does talk about that too. Death to God is, you're separated from me forever, and there's no going back once that happens. But he says, so why are you afraid of the person who can simply take your earthly life? If you're going to be afraid, be afraid of the one who can do that and kill your soul in hell. Still scary to think about, but here's the thing, all right? Because you have to read this in context, and we haven't gotten to the context, but I'm going to allude to it right here. Imagine this. I'll give you a, a very simple illustration. Imagine you're like a fourth grader on the playground at school. Everyone take a moment. All right, I'm there. All right. Over here is a sixth grade bully who wants to beat me up. Over here is a full-grown man. Now, the, full, the sixth grade bully could beat me up, but the full-grown man could do so much worse to me, couldn't he? But the full-grown man is also... My father, who loves me so dearly that he would never do that. So he's saying, if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of the one who is greater. But as a believer, you are known to God. He's going to say this in just a minute. You are so known to him and so dear to him that he would never do that. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Now, If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you are not known to him, which is what we're going to look at, you ought to be afraid. You ought to be afraid of the one who can kill your body and your soul in hell. Because if you are not known to him, that is what will happen. You understand? 
the Bible is very clear, and he says that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And if you are known to him, then he will confess you. He's going to say he's going to confess you for the Father. But if you are not known to him, he will say, I don't know this one. You don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen. If you've been told or if you believe that at some point all you have to do is lead a good life, be a good person, that may help you here on earth to to lead a life that's good, but it will not get you into the presence of God or into heaven. It will not. The Bible says this. There's no scale weighing your good against your bad. By the way, if that were the case, it's not just the bad, it's the good you didn't do, and every thought that you had, and every other thing weighed against the few good things that you might have done. And by the way, how much good do you do that isn't somehow selfishly motivated? And probably not even that much. There's no good that gets you into heaven. It is Jesus and a relationship with him that gets you there. Although, here's the beautiful part. He says, do you want a relationship with me? Let's have a relationship. This is how you do it. You say, Lord, uh, I realize now that you went to the cross and died for the sin that I should have had to pay for because I am sinful. And if you think, no, no, I'm not sinful, I'm good. Here's the thing. The Bible says that if you've ever sinned even one time in any way, that's what it is. You've sinned. You've sinned. But it says that Jesus came and he died on the cross and paid that price for you because you could never pay it. You could be good from this point to the end of time and it still wouldn't be good enough. But Jesus was good. He was perfect. And he died for you. And you simply say, Lord, I believe that now. I believe that I was a sinner and I needed to be forgiven of my sins. Thank you for coming and dying on the cross for me. Please forgive me. Come and live in my heart. Done. If you believe it. If it's just words that you're saying... It still means nothing. Verse 29, he's going to go in and tell you how valuable you are to him. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? Do you understand? He says a sparrow, or two sparrows for a penny. That means one sparrow costs half a cent. That's not a lot of value. And yet, he says, a thing of such little value the Father is aware of even when one of those falls to the ground. Something of so little value. And then he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He, Jesus says that God values you so greatly that he even knows the number of hairs on your head. Man. That's easier for him. It's easier for him to know some of us than others, I think. You know, has the average person has 140,000 hairs on their head. The average person. I, I'm not average. Frank, you're not average. Um, but Jesus, know, but the Father knows us that intimately. You know, he, he even knows when the hairs fall out. He knows where they go. Those hairs that are someplace he knows, he's got those numbered. He's got them collected. I cleaned out the drain in my daughter's bathtub, and there's just like, you're just like, holy cow, what the, where does this go? And you're like, oh, my Lord. And the Lord's like, I know all of those as well. 
And the thing is, the reason why that's such a cool example that he gives us, because it wasn't that I knew you. He says, I, they're numbered. That means it's a number that changes. When you brush your hair, that number changed. He still knows. He still knows. That's how much he knows you. He says, if I care for the one half-cent sparrow that falls to the ground, and I know every hair on your head, how much more do I care for you than that one half-cent half sparrow that falls to the ground? That's why he says, don't be afraid. Do not fear, therefore, he says. He follows this whole section up. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Get a whole armful of sparrows. You get a dollar, and you've got like 200 sparrows. He cares more than that for you, for you. Verse 32, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before him, Men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This isn't like, um, this isn't like an ongoing, like, uh, oh, well, I, you know, I'm a believer, I'm saved, but you know, last day I had a weak moment and I didn't say anything, like I didn't say I was a Christian. And, and it's not like in that moment Jesus goes to the Father and says, like, yeah, I don't know him anymore. So my salvation is sealed, you see. Um, and we, I know this because, I, because what happened to Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times in one night, three times. And Jesus still came to him and gave him the opportunity to say, I love you. He said, Peter, do you, you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. I just said it three times now. Three times Peter denied him. Three times the Lord said, I'll give you the chance here to come back. And he came back. Now, this is saying right here that if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, then when you stand before God, Jesus will say, this one's mine. Like this. But it says that if you deny him and you stand before God, Jesus will say, I don't know that one. I don't know him. And then it's being cast out into outer darkness. Man. Do you know that I uh, went down this crazy YouTube rabbit hole this week? Did you ever do that? You start off with something completely makes sense to what you're doing, and the next thing you know, you're watching some ridiculous video that has nothing to do with anything relevant to what you've got. Is that just me? No. All right. Good. Excellent. Uh, So I ended up watching this one video, and this, this guy, he breaks my heart when I watch him, because this was a guy that said, um, here are the seven reasons why going to hell is better than going to heaven. And he believes this. Seven reasons why going to heaven or hell is better than going to heaven. And the first reason he gives is because he just wants to be with all his friends. Now, that doesn't speak very highly of his friends, first of all, because he's assuming they're all going to hell also. But every reason that this guy had for why going to hell was better than heaven was, had nothing to do at all with anything that the Bible says about either one of them. He thought, you know what? It's going to be like one of the, like only the rebels and the rock stars go to, go to hell. And I don't know, boring people are up in heaven. And I was like, dude, 
you got to get some understanding outside of like Billy Joel songs and, and movies, you know. He seriously is thinking, well, I'm just going to be like, you know, at least we're going to be with my friends and we'll all be together laughing it up. And it's like, if you believe that, if that's what you think also, if you think, oh, well, you know, at least it won't be boring and we'll be down there and maybe it'll be. He even says at one point, he's like, you know, I could deal with the heat. And I, I really, I want to write him back and say, all right, why don't you go and just hold your hand over the fire for, a, you know, 14 minutes. And now imagine that over your entire body forever, unquenchable. And as far as being together with your friends, the Bible talks about outer darkness. Flames, outer darkness, emotional torture, and physical pain. That means being burned alive in the dark without anybody around, reliving every horrible moment of your life over and over again forever with no relief. How's that sound? Even if heaven is boring, that sounds still a lot better than hell. But heaven is amazing. Heaven is, is, is awesome. I just... I watched this guy in this video and I thought, man, how do I get a hold of this guy? I just have a feeling that he's not going to hear it. But you know what? The, actually, as I say those words, that's on me, isn't it? That's on me. I'm assuming he's not going to hear it. I do that too often. Forgive me, Lord, for doing that. Maybe I will try and get that guy. Seven reasons why going to hell is better than going to heaven. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That, by the way, is going to be my Christmas card this year. That's my new Christmas card. Instead of little baby Jesus in the manger, it's going to be Jesus with the sword saying, I didn't come to bring peace on earth but a sword. You know, but you're like, but, but, but one of his names is Prince of Peace. That's true. But, but Jesus didn't come to bring peace on the world. He came to bring peace with God. And that's done through confession and repentance and relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how, that's the peace that Jesus came to bring. Because here he says, I didn't come to bring peace on this world. I'm sorry, Miss America is going to have to find a new thing to talk about. There is not going to be, the, Matthew Henry writes this. If everyone universally came to an acceptance of Jesus Christ, then we would have world peace. But until that happens, world peace is not going to happen. Jesus didn't come to bring world peace. He came to bring peace with the Father. That's why he came. He says, I came to bring a sword. What's the sword? What's the sword that Jesus came to bring? The word of God. Amen. You see in Hebrews 4, it says that the word of God is Alive and powerful, it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, dividing um, soul and spirit. <laughs> I can't read my note. I can't remember. Do... Joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts of the heart. That's the word of God. That's what Jesus came to bring. By the way, this is a funny side note. There are two words that we read in the Bible differently than we read anywhere else um, when they're written. Edged and blessed. In the Bible, we say edged, 
Anywhere else, you would say edged. Blessed in the Bible, anywhere else we say blessed. <laughs> Why do we do that? That's so weird, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword that would cut through the discerning hearts. He says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he says, this is what will happen as a result of the true gospel message coming is that it will divide people. Some will believe it, some won't. In that, there's a divide. It can't be both. Truth means that one is true and one is not. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That it sounds like Jesus being really harsh, but this is what he's saying right here. If you love someone or something more than God, that is what? Idolatry. God says, anything that you put in my place, anything that you love more than me is putting that thing in my place, and that is idolatry. And he says, if you are still wrapped up with idols, you are not ready for this relationship. Because he's going to say, you have to take up your cross to follow me. Do you understand that at this point in their lives, Jesus had not spoken to them about his cross or what really was going to happen. He might have mentioned it, but they didn't get it. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't uh, gone to the cross yet. So this example that he says to them, take up your cross and follow me, how would they know what that meant? At this time, the cross meant one thing, death. Death. No one took up a cross and didn't end up dead at the end of that walk. This, he was saying to them, if you are ready to follow me, you must die to everything about your life before me. It means that I must be the first thing, the preeminence, the priority thing in your life must be me. If, I, if it's not me, you don't understand what I'm asking you to do. It's going to say right here, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life may, for my sake will find it. When he's talking about life, he's meaning your life before Christ. The things that you had, the, the, the direction that you were going in, the goals that you had, the focus that you were on, the stuff that you had. It doesn't say that you can't have any of that stuff, but it is no longer your priority. If Jesus were to come and say, hey, that car that you love so much, I want you to get rid of it. Are you prepared to say, yes, I will. If you tell me to do that, I will do it. Are you prepared to do that? If he was to come to you and say, you know what? I know you've got this great career going, but you know what? I really need someone to go to Angola and teach the Angolese, the, the indigenous people there, to read so that they can then write a Bible in their language and teach them the gospel. Would you do it? Have you taken up your cross so much so that you could say, the person I was before is dead? Again, I'm not saying like, like I, I've gotten rid of every single possession that I, I still have possessions. I still have stuff. I still do things. I still play pickleball. But 
It's not the main priority or the focus of my life. Take up your cross, he says. Die to who you were. Find, lose your life, he says, lose your life for his sake. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. I really like that Jesus ends this passage this way because this is what he says. You may not be called to go to Angola to teach them how to read, but can you support someone who is in some way? Because in doing so, you share in their ministry and therefore their reward. Here's another example. If you go to the county fair and go and work at the Godmobile, and you sit at the front window next to your wife, and no one comes to you to talk to, about Jesus, they all go to your wife, that doesn't mean that you don't share in that ministry. In fact, you are sharing in the ministry of the God. Even though you're not doing the actual talking, you're there supporting, you're there willing to help out, but your wife is getting all the people to come to you, and I'm not, I mean, you're, they're not coming to this person that person is still part of that ministry. You understand? We're not called to do everything. We're called to do some things, and some other people are called to go, and some other people are called to preach and do other things, but we are all called to partake. He says if you receive a prophet, you get a prophet's reward. That means that if you're sharing in that ministry by supporting and by helping and by holding them up, you are sharing in that ministry and therefore sharing in the reward as well. I love that he ends with that passage. He's saying, like, we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all called to the one and final and greatest purpose, which is the spread of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do just thank you for this morning and this opportunity to open up your word here and to share, to learn, to pray, to sing. Father, I ask that uh, if there is anybody here today that uh, is listening and maybe for the first time has heard this message of uh, redemption and, and forgiveness for the first time clearly, Lord, I pray that in their hearts right now they would pray and ask the Lord to forgive them of their sins and ask you to come in and live in their hearts and be their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that um, if anyone here has prayed that today or even just thought it, Lord, that you would um, bring it to light Lord, that you would pour out to them the Holy Spirit and give them the power that they need to live a life that is worthy of you. Lord, I just, uh, Lord, I pray that no one leaves here today thinking that it, they, they could be good enough without confessing Christ, Lord. As we saw so clearly today that if we do not confess him, he does not confess us before the Father. And there is no chance after that. Lord, I'm just burdened with that. So, Lord, I just pray for any heart that might have been touched today. 
Lord, I pray for, for those of us who do know you and have a relationship with you, Lord, that we would have taken the things that you've said to us today so close to heart, Lord, that we would be not afraid, that we would not be worried, that we would um, embrace your provision, uh, Lord, that we would be ready to speak and to, to be a representative of you. Um, but Lord, not be afraid that we don't know the words to say, simply trust you to speak through us. Uh, Lord, I just thank you so much. I just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.